Thanks, Don, and thanks, Blaine. And we will be keeping you in prayer. You will be gone for how long, Blaine? Two months, that's what I thought. Very good, excellent. When you come back, it'll be springtime. <laughs> Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, as we're continuing our uh, series on the Gospel of Luke, just uh, hitting some of the highlights of Jesus' ministry. In Luke chapter 4, we're going to begin reading at verse 14 and read to the end of the chapter. John is, uh, Luke has recorded for us uh, Jesus' birth. And uh, John the Baptist's ministry uh, in preparation of that. Uh, the first part of Luke chapter 4, we have the temptation of Christ as he began his ministry. He was baptized by uh, John the Baptist and then immediately went into the wilderness for 40 days and uh, was tempted by uh, Satan and yet stood fast speaking the word of God and um, accomplishing our salvation there in the wilderness. And now Luke moves on to talk, tell us about Jesus' ministry. And so let's pick it up in verse 14. This is God's word. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed." to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the, uh, the widow, excuse me, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were, uh, was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. 
And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's bow our head in prayer. Father, we thank you that you sent your Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And, oh God, we ask now again that your Holy Spirit would open our ears so that we might receive and hear this good news for our own soul. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ there's life and there's light for sinners like us. And so, oh God, we just look forward to you feeding our souls tonight with your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, uh, Luke gives us a great snapshot into the ministry of our Savior, into the ministry of Jesus. And if you think about it, if I were to ask you tonight, um, just what one word pops to your mind when you think about the earthly ministry of Jesus? Uh, some of you maybe would say uh, the cross. Uh, some of you would say uh, miracles. Some would say uh, parables. Some would say uh, the healings. But how many of you would say the preaching? I don't think when we think about the ministry of Jesus that that is the first thing that comes to our mind or or maybe would not even be on the list. And yet, here we have in Luke chapter 4, Jesus' statement that the reason he came was to preach the good news of the kingdom of God and that everything else uh, was in service of that central principle, that central purpose. I've come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That is Jesus' mission statement. Uh, That is, in his mind, what he was sent to do, what he was anointed to accomplish. And so tonight we're going to look at Jesus' mission statement as we look at Luke chapter 4. Going to um, note first just the power of his preaching, the content of his preaching, the effect of his preaching, and the beautiful promise of his preaching. This is a wonderful, wonderful uh, scripture as uh, Luke gives us insight into Jesus himself, as he was at work, uh, Jesus is preaching in the synagogues in Judea. And note first the power then of his preaching. His preaching had amazing, unique, unparalleled authority. Verse 32, the people were amazed at his preaching because his message had authority. These are church people. Uh, They have been going to the synagogue all of their life. They've heard countless sermons, countless homilies. They've heard various priests and scribes and teachers, but they have never heard someone like Jesus. In Mark 1.22, we're, we're told that all the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. There was, there was power uh, in Jesus' 
words in his ministry. There was incredible spiritual substance. Isn't it, um, isn't it wonderful when you, when you listen to a message that is absolutely true and eternally significant and unbelievably relevant? You feel like, like you are being addressed personally. Some of you uh, will, will say after the sermon, uh, what were you doing looking at my picture all week? Man, you just, that just, that one nailed me. Well, that, that's the Word of God. That is exactly what the Holy Spirit does, and that's what Jesus' ministry was all the time. No one ever walked out of Jesus' uh, sermons and said, that's all right. Right? You, didn't, you just had a sense that you were in the presence of something that, that, that was pressing itself upon you cornering you, convicting you. you. You couldn't just sort of uh, walk out and say, yeah, I've, I've heard better. No one ever said that about Jesus' ministry, about his sermons. Well, why are they so powerful? Well, we're told why they were so powerful in the, the beginning here of our text. Uh, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. So Jesus being, right, he is divine, second person of the Trinity in human flesh, and yet he is spirit-anointed and spirit-empowered as he goes about his preaching ministry. And so there's a, there is a divine activity. There's divine energy, divine influence in Jesus' ministry. Uh, that's also true, by the way. Jesus says, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit as you go and, and teach and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So, so today, as, as, as men preach the good news, we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit so that those words have exactly that, that sort of power and impact. But the reason this message also is so powerful is it, it is good news. Think about what the people would here on a normal synagogue afternoon or whenever they had their services. What they, they would, someone would read from the law, from the Old Testament, and then generally the, there would be some teaching about um, what God requires of them, what they ought to be doing. There would be um, maybe some note of, of the promises of a Messiah somewhere down the road, but the general sense would be that that uh, if we're God's people, uh, we ought to be doing these things and we should not be doing those things. It's going to tend to be legalistic. You've got Pharisees who are very concerned about the, the moral purity of God's people, convinced that if, if you all would just shape up, the Messiah would come. Why would he come to a bunch of schmucks like you? Right? That's the Pharisee sort of message. Let's, let's get it together, people. Now, how would you like to hear that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? Will you pe people please shape up? Don't you know what God wants you to do? Don't you know how you're supposed to live? Why do you keep? That will get wearisome. So the people were told here, they marvel in verse 25, all those spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Remember what John says when he talks about Jesus, that he was full of what? Grace and truth. Here is God himself come to preach, to proclaim God's message, and that message is full of grace and truth. 
Jesus is preaching good news. And we have a wonderful example of that here in Luke chapter 4 as we see the content of Jesus' message. So uh, uh, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolls it, finds Isaiah 61. And he reads it to them. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Wouldn't it have been wonderful to hear those words coming from Jesus' mouth? Knowing who he was. Now they didn't know who he was, but Jesus reads the scripture and uh, And then he sits down. That is how uh, a teacher would teach. They would stand to read, and then they would sit to teach. So he sits down. And he expounds this. What I want to point out here in the content of Jesus' preaching is just to take a moment to notice the the nature of this good news. It... He's preaching good news to the poor. This is not the economic poor. This is, uh, this is the poor in spirit he's talking about, the same thing we find in the Beatitudes. Those who recognize that they are spiritually and morally bankrupt. Those who realize that they don't really have anything with, with which to come to God to atone for their sins. With what shall I come before the Lord? 10,000 uh, lambs or rivers of oil? Shall I offer the firstborn of my body for the sin of my soul? How am I going to pay for my sin? How am I going to atone for my guilt? How do I make myself right with God? Those who realize their spiritual poverty, their spiritual bankruptcy, Jesus says, I have good news for you. I have good news specifically for you. If you think that your your spiritual bank account is doing quite well, if you're quite pleased with uh, the merit that you have accrued, Jesus says, I don't have good news for you. But if you're spiritually poor... Jesus says that the Holy Spirit has anointed me to proclaim to you, to announce to you good news, gospel, to you who are poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. I have, um, by the grace of God, never had to spend uh, any significant time in a prison. I've been to several to preach. Uh, we went to Old Folsom Prison up in uh, California when I was in seminary and, and preached there, all the history there. Um, when you're preaching to prisoners, they have a keen sense, right, of being locked up. You have certain things you can do, but there's a whole host of things you can't do. And you're, your day is determined by the authorities, and the space where you can go is absolutely bounded by those walls and gates. What if you went into a prison to men who'd been there for years and years and years and years and had no hope of getting out and said, friends, I've got good news. The the head of the prison just informed me that uh, they're closing this place down. The doors are open. You're free to go. First of all, no one would believe you. (laughs) But what if everything just blew open? The doors all blew open. And it was... it started to dawn on the prisoners. It was actually, it was, it was actually true. They, they could just walk out those doors to freedom. Don't you think as that started to trickle down, there'd be a mad rush for the doors? I hope so. 
There'd be some who wouldn't believe. I refuse to believe, right? There'd be some Thomases. Unless you carry me out of here. Either way, Jesus, you see, when Jesus looks at humanity, he sees people in prison who are in absolute bondage to their, their guilt, who are in bondage to death, who under the law of God have no chance of freeing themselves. None. And Jesus says, I've come to give liberty to captives, to tell people who had no hope of ever getting free, you can go, you are free. Remember what John says, if the Son sets you free, you are what? You are free indeed. You are more than free. And I've come to give sight to the blind. By nature, we are blind. We don't see the glory of God. We don't see the reality of our own condition. We don't understand how great our need is. We don't see the beauty of Jesus and what he's accomplished. Jesus says, I've come to fix that problem. I've come to give sight to the blind. Notice, um, there is nothing in this good news, in this message, there's nothing here that is required of you, is there? There's nowhere in here is there a message about, now if you do such and such and such, I've, I've come to show you the way to make this work. I've, I've come to give you the mysteries of, of how to rescue yourself, how to redeem, none, none of that. It is a pronouncement uh, of, of what God will accomplish for you and has done for you. To proclaim what already is. And all you need to do is receive it. Jesus' ministry had great power because it was good news to people who had been under bad news for a long time. And it, it had power because he preached himself as the good news. So Jesus gets done reading Isaiah 61, and then he says, this scripture today has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus insisted that the scriptures were about him. John 5, 39. These are the scriptures that testify about me, about me. And that that. The good news and the, the, the liberty and the sight comes not from just doctrinal truths or teachings, but come from Jesus. It's one of, the, one of the reasons why it's so essential that when we preach and when we teach, we teach Jesus and we point, we point to Jesus. There's a, there's a, a brand of, of preaching that you can maybe call moralistic preaching that has the very best of intentions where, where, where well-intentioned men will, will, will see that God wants people to be loving and kind and generous and, and sacrificial. And, and so, and, and so there's, a, there's a sort of preaching often called moralistic preaching where you, where you appeal to God's people. And maybe you use examples in the Bible of, uh, of whatever you're trying to, uh, to, to communicate. So if, if you want to build courage, you'll go to, you'll go to Daniel or David and, and uh, highlight the good points of these men and how brave and strong they were, and then we'll all sing, dare to be a Daniel. And there's a, there's a seems to be the appearance of wisdom in that, right? You can, it's helpful to see what courage looks like. But, but what if, End of the day, you, you don't dare to be a Daniel. The, 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 the truth of the matter is you're, you're terrified of suffering. You don't have the courage. And you say there's nothing Daniel can do to give it to you. The problem with that sort of preaching, you see, is it doesn't understand the, the fundamental truth of the human condition. Our problem isn't that we don't know how we should act. We know how we should act. Uh, the, the problem, you see, is, is, is that by nature, 
we're in captivity and we're, and we're blind and, and we're poor. Is it, that's how Jesus thought of people. That's why he, he, he goes to this text. And, and it, see, Jesus says, my ministry is to come and rectify those problems. If man is not spiritually bankrupt, if he is not in bondage to his sin and guilt and judgment, if he's not thoroughly blinded to the truth, then Jesus is on a fool's errand. He's come to do what we don't need. If all we need is an example, well, we, we could have got by with Gandhi. We don't, we don't need the, the Son of God. We could have got by with good, right, good moral stories. See, what's true of moralistic preaching is also true of doctrinal preaching. Moral preaching tries to get people to improve by appealing to their will and their desire. Doctrinal preaching often tries to get people to improve by appealing to their intellect. And so we're going to teach you the, the, the truths of the Bible. Well, praise the Lord for that. But good doctrine is it's not going to address your fundamental need. Right? Just, just knowing, knowing your truths, knowing your doctrines, you, you, you ought to know them. But, it, but it's not going to change you. It doesn't free you. It doesn't transform you. What we need, what we need is to be freed from our bondage. What we need is to be freed from our spiritual bankruptcy. At least that's what Jesus thought we needed. And Jesus points to himself as the solution to that need. And so as you find Jesus preaching and teaching, uh, he engages then in the, the needs that he sees around him as illustrations of what he's come to do. You have that in verses 33 and following and, and 38 and following. He goes to the man, with, uh, he's preaching, and there's a man there with an unclean spirit, an unclean demon. Jesus is teaching, and this demon suddenly responds, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? You can, you can just hear the spite in this demon's voice. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. No fear, no worship. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent, come out of him. And, and the demon did. Now, why, would, why was Jesus, why did he do this? Well, because you see, there's a new order in town. Uh, Jesus is clearly showing that, that, that the kingdom of God has come and that things are, are, things are going to change. It's one of the things we see about Jesus preaching. The effect of it is, is that uh, people realize that they are in the presence now of the kingdom of God and the king is, has come. There's a new ruler in town. And the voice that created the heavens and the earth is now at work creating a new heaven and a new earth. And so when you're in the presence of Jesus and he's speaking, you're face to face with eternal realities, with kingdom realities, and you will have a crisis moment. You can't just, you can't just listen to Jesus and calmly walk away. There's going to be a crisis moment. It happens with the people of Nazareth. He's says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and, he's, and, he, and Jesus sees their self-righteousness. Uh, he's been to Capernaum, and they've heard about some of the miracles that Jesus did there, and, and yet he's, so, he's a hometown boy. This is Joseph's son. And so if he did those things in Capernaum, show us what you got, Jesus. Show us what you can do here. Bless, we ought to, we ought to be worthy of some particular uh, favors. In fact, this is, this, is, this is your hometown. Remember us? It just reeks of self-righteousness and, and no sense of their need for a Savior. So what does Jesus do? He exposes them. And he tells these, these stories that seem to be, why are you talking about, about these things? 
He talks about the, the days of Elijah when there was a great famine. And, and everyone in the land was, was hungry, and yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. He was sent to the land of Sidon, up north Tyre and Sidon, pagan, pagan places. But Elijah was sent there, and there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now, if they would have listened, if they would have considered this, they could have had a glimpse of the marvelous grace of God that is for the nations, not just for Israel. But they didn't listen. Jesus had pricked their self-righteous and their confident assumptions that they, because of who they were, had a special privileged relationship with God. Jesus popped that balloon, and we find when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they tried to kill him. They'd been exposed. Their self-righteousness has been laid bare. It's the same way with the demon, right? He's exposed. In the presence of Jesus, he's flushed out. When Jesus preaches, you see, spiritual realities are made, are made uh, visible. It happens throughout the New Testament. You find when Peter preaches his first sermon at Pentecost by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he preaches that you have crucified this Jesus whom God has made both Lord and Christ, and suddenly their eyes are open, and they realize what they've done. They realize the incredible the guilt that lays upon them as being those who participate in the death of the Son of God. And so they say, what shall we do? Full of fear, what shall we do? And Peter's great response, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. See, friends, that is the beauty of Jesus preaching and gospel preaching, that it exposes us, but it exposes us to deliver us, that God lays us open. He shows us we're bankrupt. He shows us that we are blind. He shows us that we are in bondage, but he does it not to shame us. He does it to heal us, to provide us a great righteousness, to, to give us eyes to see. Jesus has such a wonderful ministry in mind as the gospel is being proclaimed. I love the, the last promise that, the, that he, uh, in Luke chapter 4 here, verse 19. The effect of Jesus' preaching is to expose us, make us see our need. But Jesus has a great promise for us as we are flushed out, our self-righteousness is exposed, because Jesus says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I think that's a message that we really need to hear. What would happen in your life if you knew with absolute certainty, you absolutely knew that you were perpetually, permanently, and eternally approved by God, that you were always, always pleasing to him? How would that change your life? And I ask that because I think so, so often we, we live as though that were not true. Jesus said, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The word favor also means pleasing. Jesus says, I've come to proclaim God's pleasure, that he's pleased with you. I think a lot of us have a hard time accepting that. I think we believe that God is willing to forgive us, that God is willing to let us be a part of the family, sort of hang around. Uh, but... but do you, are you really convinced that, that God is delighted in you? I was, I was just watching a sermon, um, I think this past week, uh, by Judah Smith. And he was just talking about how he's got a couple kids. 
and he walks into the, the bathroom. He's got a five-year-old and seven-year-old, and uh, walked into the bathroom. The five-year-old was standing on the counter, and um, there was water everywhere, and, and the five-year-old has a cup of water, and he's putting it into the sink, and he's just pouring it over the head of his seven-year-old brother. And, and Judah says, you know, I, I'm just, why? And he, and he saw the mirror there, and he saw his face. It's, it's like, oh. And, and he said, I think most of us think that's how God looks at us. So if I ask you, what is, what is the face of, what do you think the countenance of God is to you? I think a lot of us think God's going, what? Again? Not, not, a, not again? Why? Don't you know better? Haven't we talked about this? That is not the countenance of God towards you. You realize that? That's not the countenance of God towards you. The countenance of God is favor. It's pleasure. It's, it's, it's a smile. Jesus says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I've come to tell you the Father is, is pleased with you. I just heard recently someone say, God loves you as you are, not as you ought to be. God loves you as you are, not as you ought to be. You, you, and you might respond to that by saying, but I, thought, I, th- I thought God hates sin. And I sin, I sin in, 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 in grievous ways. Does, doesn't God hate sin? Well, yes, he does. He abhors sin. He cannot abide with sin. And if you remain in unrepentant, rebellious sin, God says, I, w- I will turn my face from you. But you see, when you, when you repent and, and just confess the truth, confess your need and confess your sin, you have the smiling face of God upon you. He hates sin. He hates it so much, you see, that he put your sin on his own son, Jesus Christ, and made his son suffer hell for you. That's how much he hates sin. He cannot abide with it. He will not put up with it. He will punish it. But the gospel is that God has done that in Jesus, your sin on him. And that now your life is hid with Christ in God. That's Colossians 3, verse 3. I I just looked that up again this week. And and the the idea of being hid with Christ in God, the word to to hide there, it means both to to cover, to protect, and to conceal. So when, when the man went and hid his treasures in the ground, he, he concealed them. We are concealed in Jesus. And so when the Father looks upon you in Christ Jesus, you're not only protected there, you're covered there. What God sees truly is the righteousness of his Son imputed to you. So Paul says that I want to be found in him. This is Philippians. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is by faith, a righteousness that is by faith in Jesus Christ. I want to be found in Jesus, robed in Jesus' righteousness. Because there, you see, I can be confident of the smiling face of God. Friends, Jesus wants you to know that even in your failure, in your sin, your stumbling, your unbelief, your struggle with your besetting sin, even in the face of your, your guilt from past sin, in the middle of all that 
sort of is about in your life, God is smiling. The Father is smiling upon you if you are in Christ. Your righteousness is not earned. It is imputed according to faith, and God smiles. It's a great text in Isaiah 54 where God says to his people Israel, he says, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. With everlasting love. And do you remember what God said to Aaron and Moses back when they were inaugurating the worship services? God says, I want every time you get the people together, every time you gather them, I want you to let the people know that my face is toward them. If God turns his face, that is anger, that is death. But the, the, the presence of God's face is, is his benevolence, his favor, his delight, his good pleasure. And so when, when, anytime, right, this is what God tells Moses and Aaron, when, when you get the people together, every time, I want you to, to tell them, conclude the service by telling them, my favor is on them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and lift up the countenance of his face upon you and give you his peace. I want you to know, let my people know I'm smiling. That the favor of God is with them. I want you to take that with you into this week. If God before us, who can be against us? Do you fail? Yes, you do, and I do too. But your failures and your sins, your weakness, your fears, your unbelief, God is smiling. God is smiling. His face is toward you in Jesus Christ. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Believe it. Receive it. It's the good news that Jesus Christ came to give us and died to seal to us. We just need to believe and receive it. May God grant it. Amen. Oh God in heaven, I thank you, Father, that in Jesus you are smiling upon us. Oh, I thank you that Jesus has opened our eyes and Jesus has set us free. Jesus is our life. He's our peace. He's our redemption and righteousness. And Father, I thank you that we can go into the week ahead believing, knowing with absolute surety that you are smiling over us. For our life is hid with Christ. Oh, Father, I pray for your people tonight who have a hard time believing your affection and your approval of them because of past sin and current struggle. And Father, I pray that we would, we would be empowered to believe so that the, we would have joy in the Lord and that joy would be our strength. We would have great peace and delight in your salvation. Oh, Lord God, help us to believe the gospel. And Lord, again, we ask for opportunities this week to share it with those who need to hear need to hear that God's face is smiling on sinners because of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we ask you do this for our blessing and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.